Welcome to another episode of the Tiffany Madison Conversations podcast. I am your host, Tiffany Madison, a stage four breast cancer patient and mother of three. Today, I am profoundly honored to introduce a guest who embodies the true spirit of medical innovation and compassionate care, Dr. Christine Hauser. Dr. Hauser is not just any physician. She is a trailblazer in the field of integrative medicine and the founder of the Center for Collaborative Medicine based in Houston, Texas. She is also a stage four breast cancer patient herself, giving her a completely unique perspective on treating her patients. And Dr. Hauser's journey in medicine began at the prestigious John Hopkins School of Medicine, a foundation that speaks volumes about her expertise. She is board certified in lifestyle medicine and has a rich history in emergency medicine as well. And her experience in emergency situations has given her an exceptional understanding of patients from all walks of life and medical backgrounds, making her expertise very well-rounded. Hauser also combines her extensive experience in medicine, neuroscience, and psychology, which I find tremendously valuable. This unique blend is exactly what resonated with me when I was searching for a doctor who could understand my journey at every level. When I was first diagnosed, I was 28 weeks pregnant. I had already gone through a couple of rounds of chemotherapy while pregnant and was on the verge of delivering my daughter. And Dr. Hauser was an absolute breath of fresh air to say the least. <laughs> I had interviewed 26 physicians by the time I found her. And because she's a polymath, it was all of her extensive experience in a wide variety of fields that aided her in being an extremely gifted communicator, sharing with me not only hope and resilience, but also that there were so many options available that the standard of care at MD Anderson in Houston had not even discussed with me. Her passion for finding alternative and complementary options for cancer treatment is going to save my life and has ignited a very personal experience for me. I am on my way next week to engage in targeted osmotic lysis, which is a cutting edge treatment that Dr. Hauser, with, in collaboration with Oleander Technologies, which is a Louisiana-based organization, uh, is a principal investigator in this trial that is launching in Honduras the first week of January, of which I will be participating. And what I find very unique about her innovative mindset is that she is also deeply rooted in social sciences and philosophy and having a really rich background in counseling counseling psychology and her interest in Jungian psychology adds to the depth of her understanding of a patient's mind and soul, making my decision to basically engage in a very scary <laughs> but promising treatment uh, all the more sound. What I also enjoy about her as I stand here facing a prognosis of three to six months is her courage. Her approach is not just about treating the disease, but understanding the person behind the patient and inspiring them to be empowered and take ownership of their own health. So she's not just my doctor, but she's an ally in this fight. And it's my sincere pleasure and honor to introduce her to all of you, especially for the breast cancer patients and caregivers that are listening that may benefit from her expertise, even if it's a phone call, although I highly recommend hiring her. <laughs> However... I'll leave it all up to you and your best judgment. Without further ado, here's Dr. Christine Hauser. 
Hey guys, Tiffany Madison coming to you on behalf of Seatmatch, my favorite sponsor. Building an efficient team is no walk in the park. We have all been there. A roll opens up, a mad dash to fill the spot ensues. And let's be honest, for most of us, it's a little better than a guessing game if that candidate will be a long-term fit. Getting it wrong is costing us all money, growth, and that most precious resource that you cannot get back, your time. So allow me to introduce you to Seatmatch with the motto, hiring the perfect fit guaranteed. Seatmatch isn't merely a hiring firm, but a strategic partner in meticulously crafting the ideal team. Seatmatch navigates through hundreds of candidates, utilizing their high precision hiring funnel to present you with the top two to three candidates. So listen to this. They have an astounding 92% success rate in ensuring an industry-leading fit. They even offer a 12-month guarantee, which is completely unheard of in recruitment. So visit seatmatch.com today and find out how they can revolutionize your hiring process and tell them I sent you and get 10% off your first hire. That is seatmatch.com. Today with Dr. Christine Hauser as we dive deeply into the nature of the modern landscape of breast cancer, cancer treatment, and all sorts of really interesting, fascinating emerging science and different types of treatments that are entering the landscape in 2024 as we kind of close out this year and enter into a new one. And so today, as I in, uh, you know introduced uh, earlier, I am so delighted and honored to introduce you guys to Dr. Christine Hauser. She is my physician, as I mentioned in the introduction, but also a tremendous humanitarian, a very, very fantastic mom and physician. She is also a breast cancer survivor, stage four in stability at the moment, and is going to be achieving remission very soon. And so I am so excited to welcome her today and also to just pick her brain on everything that has to do with these subjects, but also some optimism and hope that seem to be continually emerging on the horizon for cancer patients and caregivers that are unfortunately saddled with this disease. And so welcome, Dr. Hauser, to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tiffany. I really appreciate the invitation to be here. And thank you very much for that overly generous introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've kept me alive so far, so I am in deeply in debt to you. But yes, thank you so much. And so I, I, I gave a, an introduction to my listeners before we started, just giving them a background of how I met you, why I chose you as a doctor, what the criteria was that I was looking for, because a lot of the listeners that are tuning in are unfortunately also going through cancer or are dealing with a recent diagnosis or an enduring uh, caregiver uh, situation where they're nursing someone they love back to health. And so one of the things I would love for you to share is your background from your own words, um, in not only in relation to being an MD and a very exceptional physician, but also as a cancer patient and as someone who is successfully helping cancer patients navigate their own diagnoses as a private practitioner. So can you just give me a little bit of, of a, a background on you and how you got started in all this uh, uh, lovely work? Sure. Yeah. And that, and that is a, a long and, and winding road. So there are <laughs> many things that, that went into that. Um, I, I guess I would say first that I, that I started off with a background that encompassed a bunch of different areas. And I, I think that ultimately that has been very helpful to me because I've had, for example, a longstanding interest in alternative 
in integrative medicine um, throughout the years, not just in the past couple of years when it's kind of become more of a buzzword and everyone seems to be doing that. Mm. Um, so I, I actually started out years ago studying social science and then did four years of graduate study in cognitive neuroscience. So looking at brain and behavior types of things. And back then, which I like to say was, you know, before all of this brain and behavior stuff became cool, right? <laughs> yeah. Already teaching um, graduate seminars in that topic on what they call psychoneuroimmunology or the relationship between the brain and mind and the nervous system and the immune system, like back, back in the 80s. So, you know, really uh. before it became a thing. Then I went on and uh, I, I went to medical school at Johns Hopkins. And then I specialized actually in emergency medicine and worked in emergency medicine. Um, for many years. And that has also been really helpful to me in my role as an integrative medicine doctor focused primarily on advanced cancer, uh, patients with advanced cancer, because it enabled me to work a lot with patients um, who have, you know, acute illnesses and, and really kind of um, complicated physiological uh, problems that they're dealing with. And that's been very helpful because a lot of people who work in this sort of integrative space um, often have mostly backgrounds in just kind of working in clinics. So they don't always have a deeper understanding of what it's like when patients are are dealing with more disrupted uh, body systems and more serious levels of disruption. Mm. Um, it's also been great because my background at, at Hopkins, as well as being trained fully in research uh, in graduate school, meant that my ability to both understand the basic science and read medical literature or other research literature is different from what your typical medical doctor has because they haven't been trained in research, or at least they've been trained in it to a very limited extent. So it makes sense that it's harder for them to read that kind of work and draw conclusions from it because they don't have a, a depth of understanding of statistics and research design and what kinds of things are available to answer what kinds of, of questions. So that was also a big help to me. My subspecialty was actually wilderness medicine. Um, that is perhaps less directly applicable, but a little <laughs> bit so in that, you know, we, we still very interested in, you know, other cultures and other approaches uh, to medicine beyond kind of the standard of care Western approaches in wilderness medicine, as well as how you do things when you have to improvise. And that's, of mm. course, a lot of what we do in integrative yeah. medicine, because we don't, you know, most of the time we don't have set answers where we're like, okay, we really know how this should be handled 100% of the time. Most of the time we're having to kind of explore and and sort out what the best approach is with the best information out there, but we don't have everything we'd ideally like to know to make those decisions. Mm. Yeah. And then, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. That's, that's fascinating to me because the integrative approach is obviously what I find the most interesting about mm -hmm. cancer care. Do you think, you know, you were talking about, um, initially when you began your training, you know, John Hopkins, and then you, you know, went to, to various different types of disciplines, did you mm -hmm. ever see yourself falling into integrative care? And, and if not, how did you figure your way into this world? So I, 
I don't think I would have thought of it at the time, but that's mostly because it didn't really exist then. You know, it's a relatively new phenomenon that integrative medicine has been growing up more as a discipline. And then there are some associated fields that people kind of get confused about because it's hard to say for sure what defines each one. So there's integrative medicine, functional medicine, and then also lifestyle medicine. And mm -hmm. um, I think that if, if there had been an area called integrative medicine, when I was originally doing my training, I would have seen myself as interested in that. In fact, even when I was finishing my residency in emergency medicine, I looked into trying to found one of the centers for complementary and alternative medicine. It was being called at the time that the NIH had put out a you know request for proposals um, mm. to, to found such centers. So I was always interested in it because I was kind of a, a strange hybrid, you know, between psychological and social sciences um, and and medical science. So that kind of suited me well, but I wouldn't have predicted going into oncology because that was that was never really kind of my thing. Um, you know, yeah. again, I liked a lot of the wilderness topics and high altitude, <laughs> heat illness and lightning injuries and, you know, those kinds of things. Um, but I guess what first got me more into the oncology space in particular what that was that my father was diagnosed with a de novo stage four lung cancer, which means where it's just found for the very first time when it's already spread to other parts of the body. Mm. And that was a big surprise because he was an otherwise completely healthy guy out looking for places to launch his kayak when he had <laughs> symptoms, you know, so that was a, oh. was a big shock. Um, and so I, you know, helped him uh, and and my mother to navigate that journey, and he did he did pretty well with it, you know, considering uh, how extensive it was when it was diagnosed. Um, but then along the way, while he was being treated, then I discovered my breast cancer. So that was very awkward in that, you know, first of all, I was I was quite young, quite healthy again, you know, again not like so many of us, not, not the person that you would have thought, oh, that, you know, that person's at high risk for developing a cancer. Um, and, you know, very difficult in that there was my dad hospitalized at the time for his cancer. And here I am, you know, slinking around the hospital, getting my diagnosis because I didn't <sighs> run into my mom in the cafeteria when I didn't uh, even know, you know, what yeah. my situation really was yet. Um, but shortly after I got my diagnosis, especially, um, I started researching it and of course, as, as we, yeah. as we do, right. And especially as, as Hopkins doctors do, again, we're very research oriented. And I learned that my type of breast cancer really, that there was almost nothing known about it. It had only really been recognized as a separate kind of breast, uh, cancer, uh, uh, well, that had only been published the year before I was diagnosed. So that wow. really put me on the alternative path straight away because I literally remember thinking to myself, wow, you know, this means they really, not, not only do we not have a lot of great therapies for a lot of cancers, but this means they really don't know how to treat this one because they haven't even really started studying it. Oh, Wow. So I immediately started looking into all of the alternative approaches because that was kind of all that was that was there. You know, I knew there was yeah. no standard of care approach that was going to be spectacularly applicable mm. for me. Wow. 
that and then that just spun off. I, I decided to do my board certification in lifestyle medicine, which is the newest area of medicine. It's not yet a separate board within the board of medical specialties, but it does have its own board examinal. Um, and that is an area that really does focus on things like nutrition, physical activity, toxin avoidance, social support, stress management, mind-body techniques, um, you know, all of these kinds of things to try to not just prevent illness, which has historically been more how Western medicine looks at those things, but also as a way to manage and, and treat and reverse illnesses whenever possible. So that was when I when I discovered that route, I thought, wow, that's really interesting because I can use my background um, in psychotherapy and uh, neuroscience and so on and kind of bring all of that together with the other areas that uh, lifestyle medicine focuses on. So I thought I was opening a lifestyle medicine practice originally, <laughs> um, but from the first patient I had who happened to be a, a patient who had had breast cancer, it just very quickly snowballed into almost exclusively patients with advanced cancers. And so that's that's kind of where it stayed. And Ultimately, I thought that was a good thing because there's certainly plenty to know about, you know, working with cancers from an alternative perspective. So this way, I, I mostly limit what I do to that. Wow. Yeah. And it's, you know, when I was looking for doctors, when you and I first touched base with each other, I interviewed, I mean, I think you were number 26 of physicians that I talked Thanks. to. <laughs> That's a lot. Uh, it was a lot. And, but yeah. you were the last one that I talked to. And then I, you know, engaged with you and have been engaging with you since, um, probably not as much as I should have been, but I'm, you know, I'm back in that. And I, I definitely think one of the, you know, really big hurdles that all breast cancer patients face, you know, regardless of their stage is sifting through information. And so, when you're looking for, because I know there's a lot of people who are listening that are probably going through cancer in some way, shape or form, right? Um, and so either as a patient themselves or a caregiver, and unfortunately, as you and I have discussed before, it's targeting younger and younger men and women, especially breast cancer women. And, you know, I was 39 when I was diagnosed. I've got four people who have in the last couple of weeks just come to me and said, I have just been diagnosed with breast cancer and they're all under 45. Yeah, And so, you know, we're, we're seeing an epidemic and it's just now starting to become very real. And so if you were to, you know, guide a patient or a listener or someone in the, the, what to look for when you want to hire someone like you. Right. And then mm -hmm. also, you know, what to look for in a doctor. Could you, could you give some tips or some feedback or maybe some, um, you know, for people who are like, you know, I've got my MD Anderson guy, but I also know I need someone else to help me guide through that like, what, or through this experience. What should people look for? Yeah, that that is a tough question to answer right now because there isn't there isn't really a certifying body or, you know, those mm. that kind of a resource that you can look to easily for integrative practitioners. Um, I think that if you can find a physician who's certified in lifestyle medicine, again, that's kind of a funny title, which may not always be out at people is like, well, what the heck is that, right? I, I don't need a better lifestyle. I'm trying to get rid of my cancer. Um, but but again, the, the areas that it covers, you know, it, it is seeking to, to both 
maximize your health and your resilience, but also to treat disorders that you have, uh, like cancer or diabetes, which could be contributing to cancer. Um, so I think a certification in lifestyle medicine is helpful. Yeah. I think another thing that I would look for um, is the qualifications as best you can sort those out. And I know that can be difficult, you know, when you don't have a lot of, of medical background yourself, but you want somebody who has a significant background in medicine to help um, understand both what's going on with you from the cancer perspective and, and from the rest of you perspective, but also to try to sift out, you know, well, are there, are there other approaches that are going to be helpful for you? You need a fairly good background in basic science to wade through all of this stuff. Mm. And often that's missing in alternative uh, practitioners. They're, you know, they're very, very well-intentioned and, and often they're doing some good stuff, but they may not really be able to evaluate whether, you know, a supplement is actually bioavailable, for example, you know, whether it's really able to be absorbed by the body, which if it's not, then again, those interesting articles that you find on it are really cool and intriguing, but it doesn't mean that taking that supplement will help you because if your body doesn't have a way to actually absorb it, then what we find when we drop that supplement on top of some cells in a Petri dish is not going to be the same thing that's going on when you take the supplement and it stays in your gut and doesn't get absorbed into your body. Mm. So, you know, there ends up being a lot to kind of research. I, yeah. I think you're also looking for somebody who does do a lot of research, not necessarily, you know, like being in the lab doing research, but somebody who spends a lot of time researching the medical literature um, because it's constantly evolving, especially in this field. Yeah. Um, and and somebody somebody who really listens and who is open to the ideas you bring. You know, I, I always say my, my patients bring me tons of ideas. And of course, most of the things that they email to me and whatnot, I've I've seen before, and that's fine. But sometimes somebody finds something, you know, really neat and different that that I didn't know about. And and I never dismiss anything out of hand. And I think that's important. Again, some things, you know may not, may be snake oil. They may be things that aren't helpful. Um, but I think it's always important to take a look at something before you dismiss it. And that's an important quality to have in your physician. That's amazing and very insightful because I know that the industry of private doctors that are complementing cancer care is, it's, I don't even know if you can call it an industry. It's a, a movement is really growing, but it's really hard to know who you can talk to, who you can trust. And there's so many different people, like you said, the difficulty of finding, finding that person is, is really high. Um, but I appreciate all of those tips because that's, those are pretty much the criteria I use to find you. <laughs> so I, I completely agree. I completely agree with the recommendations. So um, moving on, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about basically your ethos, right? Um, you know, it, as a, as a doctor, as a treating active and engaged physician and as a breast cancer patient. And I also feel like the the title of like pioneer, right? Or trailblazer <laughs> belongs to you as well as a fellow pioneer and trailblazer. I can feel comfortable calling you that. So you're, you know, you're kind of looking into all of these amazing things that are happening, some of which are, have better marketing behind them than others. Um, but, you know, the, the key here is that you have some very interesting beliefs and, and ethos about modern oncology and the future of cancer treatment. And before we dive into 
some of the cool stuff you're working on, I would love for you inviting you to give you a primer basically, because I find your perspective extremely unique and original, but also one that's starting to gain some traction amongst fellow pioneers and trailblazers that I'm talking to in the medical oncology field as few and far between as you guys are. <laughs> so um, yeah, share a little bit with the audience about like what is your perspective on modern oncology? What's, you know, we can get into like what's broken and how to fix it if you want, but what's your ethos and, and perspective on what's going on currently? Well, and I think there are so many different things that can be said about that. So feel free to kind of guide me if there are, you know, topics that, that you're thinking you'd like to have comments on that, that are, that are more relevant um, to what you had in mind with that. But I think that, that one of the challenges that the current standard of care oncology faces, which I do think they're, they're starting to, to try to address more, but it's still not enough yet. Mm -hmm. It's focusing on the experience of the patient um, in a more holistic way. Um, for example, I think that it does not put us in a very good position as patients if we are not empowered to do anything for our health. And while I don't want physicians to you know, make up stories about what you can do that will work for your health, um, for example, you know, telling patients as they often are in modern oncology, oh, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. It doesn't matter. Eat what you want, you know, exercise yeah. or don't exercise if you want, et cetera. Um, nothing you do will make a difference to your outcome. Well, the oncologist may intend that statement in a very, very good way. But the reality is that what the patient hears is you're powerless. There's nothing you can do. Yeah. Well, only I hold the power, right? Or the pharma company or, you know, whoever we're hoping is going to save us, right? Uh, with, yeah. with the next invention. And while those inventions are very important, I think with any illness, whether it's cancer or something else, patients do better when they still feel like they have some locus of control, right? Some empowerment in what, what they do. It just, you know, with anything in life, we're always in a better position when we feel like we're coming from, from some position of strength. So I think that's one of the areas where oncology kind of goes awry instead of emphasizing how the patient can be actively engaged and promoting their health, promoting their resilience. I know that's uh, one of the things, for example, that I've talked with, uh, with, with T. Colin Campbell, you know, who wrote the famous book, The China Study, yeah. that, you know, it's, it's so important that patients are in a position of resilience because we we can't eliminate every toxin that's in our environment. That's not realistic. And it probably never was, right? There've always been yeah. toxins that we've encountered, you know, as humans. But if you make the body resilient enough, it will handle those toxins. That That's his philosophy. And I think there's a lot to recommend that. So I, I think, you know, putting us in that sort of empowered position where we look at, well, how can I make my body more resilient? You know, is that through mind-body medicine? Is that through changing my diet or, you know, avoiding some of the toxins that I do have control over? I think all of those things are important, both from the physiological perspective, but also from the psychological perspective that that our bodies tend to do better with healing when we are in a position where we feel like we still are making a contribution rather than that we're just a helpless, you know, 
kind of toy being buffeted about by by whatever other forces are out there. Yeah, so it's empowerment and patient action mm -hmm. that I have seen make a big difference between the different types of patients that have outcomes, you know, and I completely agree with you. I have now spoken, I, I mean, I have five current treating physicians, right? And even in the ones I'm no longer seeing, I would say that I've had five different opinions on what to eat. Right. And it's because, and it's because there is so much conflicting information, like vegan, not vegan, right? Like I'm going with what you've told me, which is like 95% mm -hmm. plant-based, right? So mm -hmm. it's a, um, it's a really hard landscape to navigate. And if you're not, you know, this isn't your thing and you don't actually like research or you don't want to, you know, it, it can get really disempowering really fast because if the oncologist is basically saying there's nothing you can do, the drugs hold all the power. And if they work, right. they work. If they don't shrug. Right. Right. That doesn't, wait, wait, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It does not empower the patient. And, and that is so critical because you got to get up off the couch and go for a walk 30 minutes. If in the mm -hmm. back of your head, you're thinking, well, it's not going to make a difference. What? Who cares? Right. And that's true. That happens. You're mm -hmm. not going to go for that walk. You're going to snuggle right. in the blanket a little bit. <laughs> you know it's a I mean? very so passive, right? Very passive place, which, you know, can sometimes be an, an easy place to work with as a physician, right? If you're not getting much pushback from your patient and, and they're not very active, sometimes that makes your job easier in some ways as a doctor, but it's not very beneficial to the patient, in my opinion. Right. Absolutely. And I can totally see that. Mm -hmm. um, awesome. Well, I would like to switch gears for a little bit and talk to you oh, a little one, bit. One other thing I did yeah, want yes. to add, I apologize, is just, I think this is more specific to my particular ethos and, and practice. But another thing that I do think is important, and I know another mentor of mine has been Bernie Siegel over the years, uh, who's one of the original uh, mind body physicians. He was originally a surgeon, so you can imagine how you know positive his reception was back in the 1980s. He <laughs> kind of started into into all of this, but he works from this paradigm. And a lot of my training that I've done in psychotherapy at Glasgow Caledonian University and and other places has also been in in this approach, um, which is an approach that emphasizes that the patient is the expert on the patient. The mm. doctor is there to be hopefully a really wonderful resource and support, but we cannot ever know the patient in the way the patient has the opportunity to know him or herself. And I think that kind of humility, you know, that humbleness of recognizing that that the patient, the patient is the expert and ultimately the power rests largely with the patient. Yeah. I, that's I think powerful. that's yeah, and and helpful as a patient, you know, to be given that power back in a way in that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And it definitely the difference when you work with a physician that is all about empowering you and the difference when you're working with someone who's like, look, take the drugs I give you, you're just a name and a slot in my my bracket here, you know. It's right. night it is night and day and it tremendously affects patient attitude, patient well-being. I mean, being on the receive, receiving end of very recent stage four treatment by new doctors has been really humbling because I've basically been shrugged at and told, we got nothing for you. You're kind of screwed, right? And mm -hmm. other doctors 
are like, no, actually, you have a lot of things you can do. Here are the things that we've seen work. Here's some things that we've seen, you know, and it, it, it's the how it affects the patient. And I would imagine outcomes is literally night and day. And so I'm glad that you took the time to, to really dive into that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, great. Well, so I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the cool stuff you're working on because a lot of the people in my audience are also like investors or people who are in the fellow technology industry with me and we love cutting edge shit. (laughs) So (laughs) part of of the lure when I first started working with you is that you have two skills that are incredibly important when you're working in disruptive industries. The uh-huh. first one is discernment. <laughs> so <laughs> as a as somebody who's a blockchain person who's been sometimes the only adult in the room that's like, that's vaporware. That's not a real project, right? right. You, you see the same type of stuff in cancer all the time. Well, that sounds great. But in reality, are there really some next great breakthroughs actually happening? And what I have found fascinating about working with you is that you're already there. So you basically mm-hmm. do not to toot my own horn, but you two, you basically do in your realm, what I do in, in, or did in like the blockchain and in crypto industries, like find the cutting edge, find the, the, the most promising trend and then help make it serious. And so that's what because I see. We need you those. Doing. <laughs> yes. We need those in cancer care. Yeah. Yes. And so there's a lot of charlatans, a lot of quacks. You have helped me navigate away from them very mm-hmm. consistently. And so I would love to just hear what, I know you have multiple things you're working on that are really cool, but mm-hmm. tell me what's the most exciting thing um, that maybe you have coming down the line. And then hopefully we can dive into some other projects too, that you've got going on. Great. Yeah. I, I think the, the hands down most exciting, even though I love, as you say, the, the whole variety of, of projects that I'm, that I'm helping with or, or, or following closely and, and assisting in developing, but the hands down most compelling one is a project um, called Targeted Osmotic Lysis, and that is an entirely new kind of technique. It's been in development for around 15 years, but it's a very different approach to anything else that we have in the cancer treatment field. Um, and in fact, it's it's so novel that when they first started going through the processes with the FDA, there really weren't many people, the company kind of didn't realize this at first, but the FDA didn't even have many people to deal with technology or equipment on the oncology side of things because everything is drugs, right? It's just the, the whole system is set up to focus on pharmaceuticals because there aren't that many machines historically that ended up being useful for oncology care. But targeted osmotic lysis is a technique that is incredibly elegant and holds a lot of promise, and it's targeting advanced cancers. So it's targeting mostly cancers that are already metastatic, so the ones that have already spread to other sites. And in many ways, that is great because those cancers are the ones that we have the least good options for, right? And early cancers, our options aren't always fabulous, but often we do fairly well at getting a lot of people to, you know, never have another recurrence of, of that cancer. But with stage four cancers, we very rarely succeed in eliminating those. And we do use alternative approaches to try to improve our chances of getting rid of them, but it's still a really uphill battle. So 
This technology, uh, excitingly enough, was developed by uh, two researchers at LSU, and they did not come from the oncology field, which may be, in a sense, part of the reason that they thought of this or, you know, recognized this opportunity, <laughs> made it harder for them as they tried to progress with it. But but I, I'm not sure if it would have occurred, you know, to somebody kind of thinking in the usual kind of canonical oncology approach. So they were actually, it was a neurologist and a pharmacologist, Harry Gould and Dennis Paul, and they were working on chronic pain fibers and because chronic pain is a neurology thing. So they were experts on some of the changes that happen in nerve fibers when they become uh, kind of ways of transmitting chronic pain messages. And what they found was that those, uh, one, of, one of the important changes is that those fibers develop far a far greater density or concentration of these voltage-gated sodium channels. So literally channels that can open up in the cell membrane that allow sodium ions, which just means a charged sodium uh, uh, ion, a charged sodium particle to, to flow through into the cell. So this was their area of specialty. And a while ago, um, they were you know sitting in one of these research seminars, somebody was lecturing on cancer, you know, they're thinking, uh, this is not, not our thing, you know, right? why, why pay attention? And then they decided to, to inquire later, like, well, I wonder if cancer cells do anything funky with their sodium channels. So they checked and it turns out that cancer cells also dramatically increase their voltage gated sodium channels when they become metastatic or sometimes if they just develop very aggressive cell lines, even a little bit before the metastatic phase. So then they made another really big leap, which again, most people wouldn't. And they said, well, so if that's true, um, most of the researchers who've started looking at sodium channels have really kind of grown up in the past couple of years. And their emphasis is on how do we close them, right? Because they're associated with, with tumors that metastasize and do more aggressive stuff. But, but uh, Dr. Gould and Gould and Dr. Paul instead went the opposite direction, and they thought, well, so what if we could selectively open those channels? And if we did open them, the sodium would run into the cell because that's just how it works. It, there's a there's more sodium concentrated outside cells than in cell inside cells. So if you open the channels, they tend to run in. So they thought, what if we could build a machine? that selectively opened the voltage-gated sodium channels. That would allow sodium to run into the cell. And if sodium runs in, water follows by osmosis, just like you, you know, did in your, in your high school biology experiments when you, you know, dropped a cell into free water and watched it explode because too much free water went into the cell. So the sodium runs in, water follows it, and the cell explodes, or at least it should. Hmm. So they thought, well, maybe that's a way that we could kill cancer. And they thought, hopefully it wouldn't disturb any of the normal cells because the normal cells just don't have that many sodium channels on them. So they started testing that and they coupled it with a very old heart medication called digoxin. And that works by not allowing the cell to throw sodium ions out. So in other words, they have this pump that allows them to put to throw sodium ions back out if they have too many. The digox mm. shuts that down so they can't do that very well. So the sodium runs in, they have no way to pump it back out, and then water follows it and it explodes. <clears throat> so they tested this in the lab with tissue, 
and it worked. It wow. took them a while, obviously, building different kinds of machines. Uh, they ended up working with the developer of the MRI machine for a while and so on, trying to figure all of this out. But in the end, they built larger machines that are big enough for animals or humans to lie down in and have the entire body treated with this pulsing electromagnetic field it's a very low level electromagnetic field. It's less than you would get standing under a high tension wire. So it's not something that we or animals perceive. Mm. Uh, it's comfortable. There's, there's, you know, you don't notice that there's anything happening. You don't have to be hooked up to anything. There's no pain involved with it. And so far, based on work that's been done with about a thousand rodents and around 50 dogs and cats, as well as an additional 12 dogs that just completed an FDA required experiment. I don't have the report yet from that, but it appears that everything went, went well with that experiment as well. Um, it looks like it's working more or less the way it did in the tissue samples in the lab in that it destroys cancer cells and it does not damage normal cells. So that, if you let it sink in, is pretty shocking um, in that it also treats the whole body. So another beautiful aspect of what we call TOL, uh, the abbreviation for targeted osmotic lysis, is that we don't actually need to know where the cancer cell is, right? Often that's a problem that you might have a lesion or two, and you can perhaps target that with treatment, but you may not get all of the cancer cells because you don't know where they are or they're you know they're too small in number to target with uh, you know a, a technique that damages the normal cells in the area as well and so on so often we miss cells and we think that's why we have such a hard time eliminating cancer or why it you know recurs so many years later after it's hidden out somewhere in a dormant form but this should allow us to eliminate all of the cancer cells that have upregulated sodium channels, or at least close to all of them, hopefully. Um, of course, we can't make any claims officially about that because we haven't done the human research in it yet. But theoretically, it should allow us to go after all of those cells and either hopefully eliminate a bunch of them and have an immune response due to the, have, having so many cancer cells break open that the immune system helps to clear the remaining cancer cells um, if there are some that haven't been broken open. Um, or alternatively, let's say somebody still has a, their primary tumor in place as well as their metastatic sites. There might be some cells there that don't have upregulated sodium channels. Well, that's okay too, because you could potentially just turn that stage four disease into a chronic disorder where the person comes back on a particular schedule, you know, let's say every three months and has a treatment to catch any cells that are trying to turn metastatic. And then we leave some of the, some of the not so aggressive cells in place, or perhaps you choose to surgically remove those at that point. We, you know, we'd really have to explore what the best best path forward would be at that point. But either way, it's incredibly exciting. We, we did have the opportunity to use it on one human patient on an emergency use authorization that the FDA and the IRB approved. Um, and that was a patient who was thought to be quite close to, to death at the time with a cervical cancer. 
Um, and she responded really well. In fact, so well that she didn't qualify for further treatment under the emergency use authorization as she was, was improved significantly. And unfortunately, we were not able to have an oncologist write a compassionate use application, which the FDA was waiting on and expecting so that we would be able to treat her again. She, she and her family did want to continue treatment, but that wasn't possible. Um, so she did die, but she died nine weeks later, which was considerably more than expected. And she had had a, a lot of return of of function where you know she had much better energy and appetite and color and she was able to be communicative with her family and just you know participate far more than she had been able to before so that was certainly very encouraging so at this point we're we're working to hopefully um, move into some clinical trials in the u.s in 2024 um, that's not absolutely for certain yet but we're working toward that um, with the FDA. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, and there is a location also um, in the Caribbean where we will be uh, able to offer a treatment, we expect, or therapy with TOL um, to patients with different sorts of, of cancer um, so that we can also, you know, as in a sort of study setting, not officially a clinical trial, but a study setting, be able to um, evaluate how the TOL is performing uh, with those different patients. Yes. Um, one of the things that I, um, given my stage four progression and just in the last couple of months, what um, has happened in my situation with the skin metastases and I will be there. Um, I'm, I'm very, very excited. I'm you know still working out the details, but I think that this treatment is really promising and what you're working on is really interesting. I also thought that you were going to mention the scans that you have been working on. I honestly, when I asked you that question, didn't think you were going to say TOL first, which was pretty cool. Oh. <laughs> um, but I thought the, so, so um, I will butcher this if I even attempt, but you had just shared with me because I'm, you know, I'm stage four, but there, you know, kind of has some trepidation. Should we give her another scan? Should it be a PET? Should it be an MRI, CT bone, right? right? Insurance companies, all that stuff. And mm -hmm. so, um, I remember as I was kind of sharing that with you, you were telling me that you were in Belgium mm -hmm. working on a really interesting imaging technology. Can you share that? Cause I'm really Absolutely. fascinated by this. Yeah. I, I chose TOL as the most exciting because it's, it's potentially a treatment modality. And, mm. you know, so that is the ultimate, of course, that, that most people with cancer are most worried about is, you know, how do we find a therapy that, that actually takes care of people, especially when they have advanced cancer. Mm. But yes, the, the MRI uh, technology that's been developed in Belgium is really wonderful. And um, we are working to try to find ways to bring that to the US, hopefully to do clinical trials with it here. They're, they're continuing their studies on it in Belgium now, but, but we would definitely like to expand that and make it more widely available in North America. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a technique that was developed at University of Leuven, and that's been kind of spearheaded by a radiologist named Vincent van de Kavaya. And he, along with the team at Leuven, has succeeded in, they're, they're using normal MRI machines, so the regular ones that hospitals already have in place, but they've reconfigured them so that the MRI is reporting on the contents of the body or the cells um, in, a, in a different way than usual. So what it's doing, and, and MRIs are always kind of 
relaying information to sensors about what what atoms are in what place and how far they move back is after you put a strong electro uh, electromagnetic field on them then you you pick up the the sensor picks up how far away kind of they the atom has reoriented when that field disappears mm. so what they've done with this instead is they're measuring using the MRI technology, the diffusion restriction of water. So how well are water molecules able to move around? And essentially in tumor areas, the water molecules are much more constricted. There, there's much more stuff, much more cellularity usually in those areas so that the water ends up significantly more restricted in how well it can diffuse kind of, you know, just mosey around um, in a space than it would be in normal cells. So that's actually what they're picking up. And the amazing part of this is that they can scan the whole body, which is one of our issues with scanning, right? Is that usually you end up with a head scan or a chest scan or an abdomen and pelvis scan, but you don't get the whole thing in one scan. Um, which means that sometimes we miss things, right? We might be following, say, what's going on in the liver, but we might not see something that's happened in the upper part of the lung. Or many people have had the experience where a tumor develops as a metastasis from cancer in the brain, but often it's not found until it's big enough to produce symptoms. And that's a problem because often then it's it's done some damage to the structures of the brain and it may be big enough that it's harder to manage um, medically. But because we're not always scanning brains routinely, we don't find those things. So this scan is completely different in that it's 38 minutes and it scans the whole body. So you're seeing the brain, you're seeing the lungs, the liver, the belly, um, you know, all of all of the, the, into the pelvis, all of the body where, where you would be concerned about cancer and cancer spread. Additionally, it is in most cases able to show whether those lesions are active or not. So it not only shows you the lesion, but it tells you if it's a quiet lesion that, that's just, you know, already healed over, or if it's actively doing something. And it has great resolution down to around a millimeter. So it's able to, for example, reveal lobular breast cancer, it seems. They're about to, to publish another uh, set of data on that shortly. It, it appears to be able to demonstrate where the lesions are from various cancers, including really hard to see ones like lobular, and it just reveals them really easily and nicely. So wow. that is a major step forward and no radiation, no IV even, no wow. contrast. Right. So it's relatively quick and easy and you get a much bigger picture of of the body and you get much, you know, much better resolution and you get information on whether it's active or not without using a nuclear medicine tracer. I'm just I'm so excited of, to see all this stuff because, you know, as a student of history, I've watched multiple just amazing trends throughout history transform care overnight and sometimes the adoption of tools takes longer sometimes you know I mean, what what do we have a, the adoptions of vehicles in like 12 years right it's like, yeah. It's like yeah the more amazing the technology sometimes the faster the adoption i know there's also private interests that you know theoretically would have some invested interest in you know not seeing these types of modalities come to light 
because you know, as a conscious capitalist, I can say um, I'm sure there's a lot of profit motive in keeping the chemo uh, empire uh, alive and well. Um, if you want to comment on that, feel free to do so, but we don't have to go dive, dive into that if we don't want to. I, well, I, I think it's always, it, it makes it a complicated landscape because, you know, absolutely, whether it's, whether it's, um, you know, interests within radiology and nuclear medicine, right? I mean, on the one hand, it would be great if we could get rid of a lot of these studies that are not optimal for patients um, or for following care in many ways. But of course, there are constituencies, if you will, right? There are industries that are relying on those and, and you know, kind of whole uh, industries built up around certain kinds of machines and certain kinds of testings, as well as as chemo, that certainly it could be very disruptive if we have some of these techniques that, you know, that don't require those approaches anymore. So I, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely kind of a, a fraught area where it's hard to know exactly how that will go. And they say that in medicine that supposedly the the statistic is that it typically takes about 17 years for something new to be adopted. I, I hope that's not really true, but from what oh. I've seen, sometimes that may be about right. <laughs> so yeah, there are many reasons why things can be, you know, slow to, to come to adoption, but I do think especially, and I think there, there's a real role for patient advocacy organizations, which those organizations have been starting, you know, to to apply more pressure. And I think rightly so. It's not that we want, we, you know, none of us as patients want technologies to be adopted when they're unsafe or, you know, there there's too much that isn't known about them yet. But at the same time, I think a realistic risk and benefit assessment needs to be done just as just as we would do in any other field, right? If we were doing a a threat assessment, you know, if you're if you're looking at a at a mission or you know any kind of environment, you always weigh the risks and the benefits. And I think when you're dealing with, for example, stage four disease where you don't have any good treatments available, or maybe you have a couple, but then once those run out, you know, the rest are really not that benevolent to live with, um, and ultimately don't leave you well. Um, Certainly you can try all of the other maneuvers. And for some people, those will be successful with, you know, being very devoted to mind body medicine, using repurposed medications, you know, all of those kinds of things. But for a lot of people, either through not having enough time or not being able to apply enough different kinds of approaches simultaneously, you know, and so forth, they they don't end up doing well in the end. So we really do need some other approaches. And if you're in a situation where the standard of care has essentially a hundred percent bad outcome track record. <laughs> then I think, right, it's probably appropriate in some of those settings to allow patients to try some of these other options in a in a more, you know, with more of a free hand, um, if we have some reasonable data to indicate that they're probably not going to be harmful. Yeah, you know, I would love to do, because I know we're coming up on time, but I would love to do a follow-up with you diving a little deeper into that. For example, one of the things that um, we can touch on it right now too, but I'd like to get a little deeper with you. Um, But one of the things that MD Anderson uh, was my treating hospital for most of my cancer care said to me repeatedly when I would ask about, you know, various different supplements or should I take this or should I take that? 
um, they would say there is no clinical data showing that it's safe. Mm -hmm. But they would also then say, and I would then say, but you also don't have any clinical data showing that it's unsafe, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're just not studying it. <laughs> so, right. yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. So, so how can patients navigate what they should, you know, I mean, obviously doctors and consulting doctors like you is the first step, but like, it's a, it's a really hard argument to make to an oncologist if they're not receptive at all to any supplementation. It's like, how do you make, can you even make that case to an oncologist as a patient? I would say that that really is kind of an individual situation. So for, for some oncologists, they're, they're not open to it. Um, and they usually don't, they don't actually even read that literature. So they don't know whether there's anything out there or not. Um, some of them have, you know, in some cases just kind of decided that this is their position. Um, they are aware that supplements haven't been tested in conjunction with the particular regimen that you're going to be taking in many cases, and in a way that they can recognize this data. So this goes back to what I had mentioned, you know, very early on about kind of having research training and full research training. Most physicians don't. So they just have a limited kind of, you know, repertoire or, or background to fall back on when they try to interpret um, research. So they will tend to only accept certain kinds of evidence as being valid because that's what they've been taught. That makes sense. Um, in order to evaluate the impact of supplements, we don't have, again, all of the data that we'd like to have to be able to make a more confident um, pronouncement about whether they're useful or not. But what we'll have is a lot of usually what we call preclinical data, meaning data that was not in, in human patients, but data that, like we talked about earlier, is either Petri dish data or nutritional data, where, for example, people have taken a certain supplement or eaten a certain food, and then we collect blood samples, and then we use those on cancer cells that were growing in the lab to see what the impact might be so it is information and it's very helpful. And if you're very conversant with research, then often you're more comfortable using that kind of information to draw conclusions while recognizing that those conclusions are not ironclad, right? I won't know 100% if this is a good idea for you as a human you know, cancer patient, what exactly the outcome will be, but I'll have enough of a sense of it from a whole variety of published research to be able to guide us in a direction or not. Yeah. Mm. But some oncologists are open to that. It, it is, I think, in some ways improving. Um, so people are a little bit more open-minded, but depending on the personality you know, of, of whomever it is that you're working with, I've encountered oncologists who absolutely refuse to hear about any of it, even if you're coming to them as a research-based physician with evidence. And then I've encountered others who are much more open. And I, I do think a lot of them are a little bit more forthcoming and allowing patients to kind of try, you know, things that may not be 100% understood when you're in stage four, because they do kind of recognize that they don't have a lot of really great alternatives for you. Right. But that it really varies 
with the individual. And, and again, even as a trained researcher and physician, you know, I have encountered oncologists who are just not open to the possibility at all that any of these things could be useful. Wow. Where do you think that comes from? Because, you know, you, you and another um, physician that has been really helpful during this entire experience used um, the word rigid. And I found that that was very fascinating to me because my husband, you know, his career military retired after 20 years right. and I have, I'm an entrepreneur who's worked in startups and late stage companies. I'm consultant, you know, I've, I'm free. I, I did the corporate thing and then I left to do the, the, you know, um, entrepreneur thing. And so it's the institutionalized attitude of a body of people that are all striving towards something has always fascinated me because I've had the army as an example, you know, so, but, but I see a lot of, and it's actually my husband who brought these to my attention, the parallels that exist with the institutionalization within the army and with a big mega group like MD Anderson. And so I didn't recognize any of that. And he picked up on it immediately. And I felt like that was something you were kind of speaking to, obviously being generous to your colleagues who we, you know, who are also trying to do their best and all that fun stuff. <laughs> um, but um, where do you think this comes from? Where is, what is the origin of this resistance to um, discovery and inquiry? Well, I guess first I would answer that I think a significant part of, changing it, which I know is not exactly the question that you asked, but I do I do see some movement on it over the years, which I'm happy about. And I do think that a significant chunk of that is because patient advocates have been infiltrating more and more conferences and so on and coming with their perspectives and their issues and kind of, you know, forcing that to be a part of the discussion. And I do think wow. that you know, that is making some inroads. Yeah. I mean, still not as much as we need, of course, right. but I do think that, that that is, is kind of, you know, compelling oncologists to, to think more about the patient perspective in these things. And, and I do think it's, it's been helpful, wow. but where it comes from, I, I think is, is, you know, has not been well understood, but I would say that within medicine, what you do see is that each specialty kind of has its own personality, right? As if each specialty were its own person in a way, its own individual. Mm -hmm. And so you will see, for example, that general surgeons will have one sort of, you know, loosely speaking, you know, will have, have a kind of personality to them. Emergency medicine people will have a personality to them. Emergency medicine people tend to be entrepreneurial. They tend to be improvisational. You know, all the things <laughs> that you think would go along with being in a field where you often don't have adequate information and where you have to <laughs> improvise and wing it a bit. And, you know, pa your patients are almost always coming in with no history where you have to try to figure it out. And, you know, yeah. so that's a very different kind of setting than, um, oncologists come from internal medicine. So they train in internal medicine first in the United States in any case. And then after internal medicine, they choose to do a fellowship in medical oncology or, or hematology oncology. Um, so they're already internal medicine people and the internal medicine people, again, are as a personality are, are kind of less they're less freewheeling than, say, general surgeons or emergency medicine folks. They're just a little bit more sort of conservative, I would say, by nature on the average. I mean, this, this is just my impression. Mm -hmm. um, but then within that group, you know, you have people who go into different fields 
And so, for example, the ones who go into cardiology are pretty different from the ones who go into oncology. So it seems for some reason, perhaps partly because of the way kind of standard of care in oncology has developed with the flowcharts and the guidelines and being much more kind of governed in that way, it's hard to say what was the chicken and what was the egg, but yeah. it, it may be a field that, you know, that is more attractive to people who kind of like to operate that way. And mm. because of that, it can be tough when you then bring in something that's completely outside the norm for them that there isn't data on. Um, and, and they will often respond in a way that is kind of supported by the group of just, you know, well, don't, don't mess with this. We don't know what that will do. And strictly speaking, they're correct, right? It has not been a hundred percent researched in every different, which way to be sure of what the impact will be. It's just for most of us, we're thinking, well, but the outcome of your therapy isn't very good anyway. <laughs> In which case, I don't really mind messing with it, right? I can always understand where, you know, if it's, say, a childhood leukemia, where we have like a 90% chance of curing that child if we follow our medical protocol. Some of us, you know, still might have some issues with that protocol because there are risks involved. But still, I can understand why an oncologist in that kind of setting would say, well, you know, I yeah. have a 90% chance of getting this taken care of in a very young person don't mess with what I'm doing because maybe it'll mess things up. Then I get it. But if yeah. on the other hand, we're dealing with a situation where we have almost a hundred percent outcome of death, let's say, yeah, <laughs> I think we could probably take the risk of maybe changing that. Right. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I think patients agree. Um, yeah. Did you, I know you were at the, um, and then we'll, we'll wrap up here, but um because I want to be mindful and respectful of your time, but I um, was curious if you had any insights that are worth sharing from the recent breast cancer conferences that you've attended, because I know that you're, um, you were there recently. I don't know if you were in San Antonio and there's been a couple, but I was just curious for those of us who can't attend, is there anything particularly interesting or compelling that you found and discovered there? Um. Well, there, there are lots of things and I didn't really think that through in advance. And especially with San Antonio, that's, you know, five to six days of, of very intensive presentations. So there are many, many things that get presented. Yeah. Um, in the recent conference that I went to in Pittsburgh, that was where I had gotten to know the, the Belgian researchers who presented on the water diffusion uh, MRI. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually that was presented uh, to some extent briefly also uh, somewhere at San Antonio. Um, I also encountered um, another researcher whose work I've been following at San Antonio and they're doing really interesting work specific, currently anyway, specific to breast cancer. Um, but the work again is is done by a, by a researcher who's coming from outside of oncology, and I think you know again sometimes they have really interesting insights. So it's an astrophysicist who decided to try to look at breast imaging and discern whether there might be new new ways that we could use existing mammograms to better detect breast cancer. And now he's he's actually founded a company where they're trying to go further than that. And they're they're looking for people to partner with because they need more mammograms in order to continue having sort of the raw data. The mammograms are, 
are their raw data that they're using to develop these algorithms. But they look at cellular disruption, um, not visible disturbances on, on the mammograms. And it looks like they could probably detect people who are at risk for breast cancer before mm. breast cancer develops. So that way they could kind of tell you, oh, hey, look, you have a pattern that's concerning. So maybe you do need to start you know, other kinds of monitoring earlier. Um, whereas other people, they could say, nope, you're, you're good. You know, let, let's not worry about, about monitoring you because everything is looking good, um, on these mammograms and they can do it in dense breast tissue, which means they could potentially start in young women, not doing them very frequently because we don't want the risks of radiation to the breasts. Um, but they would be able to, he thinks also differentiate dense breast tissue that is healthy and not actually at increased risk for breast cancer from dense breast tissue that is at risk for development of breast cancer. So again, they'd be able to kind of stratify or put into groups what kind of risks people are at and then follow them potentially with not very frequent, um, but simple mammograms. So that's also- yeah. Very I would hope that's what my daughters do. Um, yeah, I didn't know that I had family cancer at all, uh -huh. um, but had functional, you know, not to, to get into this world really quick, but um, functional medicine is very fascinating to me. DNA based precision medicine is, I think, a big part of the future of medical care. And mm -hmm. so as the beneficiary of multiple sessions with really great doctors that literally have looked at my DNA and created a lifestyle suggestion for me based on that, right? Like had I had those keys at 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, you know what I mean? I would have made drastically different decisions knowing that I had a potential risk for cancer. Right. Um, and, right. and so I, I like the idea that we're starting to move in that functional medicine direction where we're starting to hyper tailor to the patient, their DNA, like their actual specific medicine and then any therapies that should, you know, potentially be applied to that patient. I think it'll just help medical applications of really, really scary treatments like what you and I have been through. Right. right. Um, and, and that we're in our potentially facing it, it helps to kind of demystify. So yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, all right. Well, I and I think at the same time, I think it's also really important, and this would be potentially a topic for another time, but to help people to differentiate which of those tests are currently validated or not, because there are a ton of them out on the market, but many of them are purporting to do things that we actually have not been able to verify that we can do in terms of understanding the cellular, you know, metabolism and needs and, and individualized DNA. So there is some of that that we can do, but there's a lot that we can't do. And I fear that often patients are paying for a lot of expensive analyses that are not very uh, helpful in many cases. Yeah. And that's very, very unfortunate. Um, next time we talk, we should get into Protean and uh, yeah. the, it's a fantastic organization and talk mm -hmm. a little bit more about that. And maybe a little, there'll be some updates we can share on Oleander and um, yeah. the targeted osmotic license. I'm so excited about this. So um, yeah. Oh, and good, good that you mentioned that because I didn't say the company's name, but if people do want to look that up, yes. there are some, there's additional information and some some um some some animated uh, you know little videos that you can watch at the Oleander Medical Technologies website if they want to 
look up any information on, on TOL. Yes. And for my VC and angel friends listening, I do believe they are seeking investors. So I, I think it's a quiet, uh, round, but I would, yeah. um, definitely reach in. Is that correct? Dr. Hauser? That's right. And, and actually Protean is as well currently, and they're hoping to close that in January, I believe. Interesting. Uh, wow. So if anyone wanted to get in touch this listening to mm-hmm. either organization as a potential investor, who should they reach out to? Um, they're, they're welcome to, to reach out through me and, and I can direct them. Um, and I have, I have a contact with Protean who could take care of that. And otherwise I can, we can funnel it through to, to Oleander as well. That's amazing. Thank you so much. And we'll have, and, and I am not party to any of that. I'm just facilitating. Cause I think these companies are really awesome. Yes. And I trust your instincts. And so I, I back it a hundred percent. I love it. I love it. Well, good. Well, hopefully uh, I love when my friends and family and people that have the ability to invest, make smart strategic investments and then grow their money with good companies. It's happened many, many, many times in my life and I love it. And so I, I definitely have Very no qualms. <laughs> yes. No qualms directing people that way. So that's great. Awesome. Well, I, again, want to be valuable or I want to respect your valuable time. I am so grateful that you had the time to sit with me today. I look forward to part two. Any parting uh, suggestions, recommendations, thoughts that you would like to make before we close out? Um, I think just to, to remember that, that you actually do have a lot of power in this. I think it's very easy to feel like cancer has kind of taken over your life and it does in a lot of ways, um, but that you actually do have a lot of power in it and that there are good people out there who can help you to kind of direct and navigate that. Um, and again, you know, to remember that also it, it does often feel very isolating, um, but there are there are doctors out there like myself who've been through that experience and who are aware of kind of the psychological component as well as the practical, you know, how do I solve this problem component? Um, and it, it, it's important to reach out, I think, to to people who have a real understanding of it and where you can feel comfortable really sharing because any energy that you're busy investing into, you know, into trauma and uh, distress is energy that's not available for your healing and and Mm. you need it for your healing wow that's a great parting thought thank you so much and a great reminder for me too your patient (laughs) (laughs) yes awesome well thank you again dr hauser it's been a true pleasure again i look forward to our round two uh but have a great rest of your day merry christmas and we will talk very soon Yes. Merry Christmas to everybody. Happy holidays. And I look forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks so much for having me, Tiffany. Yes, ma'am. Thanks. Bye-bye. You have just listened to Tiffany Madison Conversations, a podcast about the nature of humanity, spirituality, healing, consciousness, technology, and love in revolutionary times. I'm a mother of three, a three-time entrepreneur, and a stage four breast cancer survivor. To support my work and the podcast, check out my Patreon or Give Butter fundraising that is covering my treatment costs as I defy my prognosis and walk the path of my higher self until God brings me home. Many thanks to all of those who have donated and supported the podcast. Much love to you all.